Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 407. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years helping you with your little, little computer programs. That's a little to everybody else, but huge to, to yourselves. So a big thank you to Clive and Diane for helping out. Big thank you. Got some great stuff lined up today. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have a little interview with Ben Stein, who is the director of InsideScience.org, a site dedicated to kind of telling the news on all science. And we're talking about the Nobel Prize for Physics, no less. Yes. Then we have the main fiction, which is The End of the War by Django Rexler which was originally published in Asimov's magazine. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So before we get into all those little, little areas, just to say a heads up. It is now the 19th of October. Newsletter comes out again. And we've got some, I've got actually a prize in the newsletter as well. So we'll have a look over there. And lots of, lots of things in it. So don't forget to sign up for this newsletter and you will... You will enjoy it, I am sure. What else? Big thank you to, you know, Sarah Ely for coming on last week's show and just kind of opening up, you know, and just allowing us to kind of, you know, it was lovely just to talk to her, just to kind of find out, you know, what it's like for someone who's going through this kind of transgender change. And I've just had so many replies, do you know what I mean? It's sometimes a subject that kind of, a few people don't want to, you know, are a bit shy to ask about, you know, and I just wanted to kind of ask these questions. And like I say, I've had loads of comments about it. And it's, 
it's actually like a, a nice little kickstart to kind of just to do some, you know, some more interviews and just kind of get me kind of, you know, asking some questions. And I really enjoy that kind of side of it. So, um, like I say, I've got Ben on today. And we're getting a few more interviews kind of lined up, which is, and some, some quirky kind of ideas. Do you know what I mean? I just kind of, i seen in the news today, you know, there's, you can get, you know, there's this big kind of rush to kind of, you know, like, well, always a rush to save the planet, you know, to kind of recycle and everything like that. Now the kind of, there's, there's a company making edible water. Now I know that sounds quite strange, but it's to get rid of like kind of the, all the kind of use of like, it's just um, you can imagine the amount of bottles, plastic bottles, because water now, drinking water is the kind of, you know, more people drink water than any kind of liquid. You know, buying it, what I mean is, you know, in kind of, instead of the kind of cans and the, you know, the plastic bottles of energy drinks, it's water. And someone's come up with this idea that kind of you can make these kind of, or they can make these kind of globules of water and you just pop it in and you can eat the whole lot. <laughs> Man, how cool is that? So it's things like that, you know, in all different interviews as well. So that's my idea. So look out for some cool new interviews coming soon as well. So let's kick off with an interview with Ben Stein. Like I say, Ben is kind of the director of InsideScience.org and just a great site to just kind of help, you know, just bring the news of science. And everyone loves, well, it's a, it's a kind of, I'm saying everyone loves science, but when it's kind of explained correctly, do you know what I mean? Like, say, schooling me was just a kind of mismatch. It didn't work. But talking to someone like Ben, it's just great to kind of, you know, you get excited, you know, because there is great news happening. And, like, say, we've had the Nobel Prize for physics. And I just want to talk to Ben about that. So I have Ben Stein on the phone, and it's lovely to talk to you, Ben. Oh, it's great to talk to you, Tony. I'm very happy to be here. Now, Ben, I've seen you, you put up a great article on your website. And I just thought, you know, about the, the 2015 Nobel Prize. And I wonder if you don't mind just telling us who won it and what they won it for. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. The recipients of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physics were Takaki Kajita of the University of Tokyo and Arthur MacDonald of Queen's University in Canada. And they wanted for the discovery that subatomic particles called neutrinos can change from one form to another. And this process requires that these particles, which were long thought to have zero mass, uh, have mass. And this all has very important implications, which I'll be happy to describe. Well, go, go on, Ben. I mean, I've got a tiny little inkling what neutrinos are, but I was hoping you could kind of little, expand it a little bit. Sure, sure. Neutrinos are subatomic particles. Uh, they are extremely elusive, one of the hardest particles in nature to detect. Um, they're very abundant. They're produced in all sorts of processes, uh, such as uh, when the, the sun shines to uh, the beginning, very beginning of the universe uh, is another time in which uh, they were created. So neutrinos don't have electric charge. They don't radiate visible light or any other form of electromagnetic radiation. Billions and billions of them pass through our bodies every second, but we can't feel them. Um, and so they're one of the most abundant yet uh, elusive particles in nature. I was just wondering then, when did we, we is this a new thing, neutrinos? When did we first discover them? In the 1930s, um, they were first discovered to solve a big mystery in nuclear physics. Uh, 
there's a type of radioactive decay known as beta decay in which um, a neutral particle called a neutron, uh, which you find usually in the core of atoms, uh, neutrons can sometimes transform, they could decay into a proton and electron. And this decay should release a lot of energy, but physicists weren't finding all the energy that was supposed to be released from them. So to solve this, um, a famous physicist called Wolfgang Pauli wrote a letter in 1930, and it was a funny letter. He, he said in a German, he said, Dear radioactive ladies and gentlemen, he went on to um, propose this particle called the neutrino. He said that the remaining energy from this beta decay, some, from this nuclear reaction, from this radioactive decay, was being carried off by additional particles that uh, were later called neutrinos. Um, Enrico Fermi, Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, uh, called them neutrinos, uh, which is Italian for little neutrons. And I think Pauli kind of felt bad about proposing this particle because it was all theoretical. And he said reportedly that, you know, I've done a terrible thing. I've proposed a particle that no one's going to be able to detect. So it wasn't until 1956 before this particle could be detected uh, by a team of um, – led by two physicists in the U.S. So this is this very um, slippery, uh, elusive particle was finally detected and um, was, you know, uh, determined to, to, to be real. I'm just – are the important – I know this sounds a bit flippant – Ben, but are they important in kind of, you know, in the whole world view thing of, of life? Oh, it's not flippant at all. Um, the reason, there's a number of reasons why they're so important. Well, first of all, they're the second most abundant known particle in the universe. The fo- first most abundant particle would be um, photons, uh, particles of light or any other electromagnetic radiation like X-rays or radio waves uh, can be thought of as, you know, little... Um, packets of uh of light called photons so next to the photon uh neutrinos are the most abundant particle in the universe and they're really important for understanding uh, the formation of the universe Um, they're important for understanding processes that occur inside stars um you know like a lot of the energy of stars is radiated away um in neutrinos and Another thing that makes them really important is that the work that was recognized in this year's Nobel Prize showed that they have mass. Now, physicists, after they discovered the neutrino in the 50s, came to realize there's three types of neutrinos. Um, there's the electron neutrino, which is the type that's radiated from the sun, and then there's two other types called the muon neutrino and the tau neutrino. And they start to suspect that the, the different types of neutrinos, like the electron neutrino could sometimes turn into a muon neutrino. Um, and so when this process happens, when they kind of do this shape-shifting or transformation from one type of neutrino to another, this process requires that they have mass based on, you know, like how often these transformations occur and the relative rates or whatever. Physicists concluded that these neutrinos have uh, basically um, some mass uh, associated with them and different types of mass. And why this is important is because – a lot of the, as your audience may know from reading a lot of science fiction, um, this may be in a lot of stories, is that a lot of the mass in the universe is missing. It's dark matter. It's mass that does not radiate any light at all. And so 
if these neutrinos, these really abundant particles have mass, they may make up some of the missing mass in the universe. And so estimates say that neutrinos may make up as much mass as all the visible stars in the universe. Uh, so that's one reason why they're important from a scientific point of view. It's fascinating, really, when you kind of you, you give that, that kind sense. of no, yes, when you when you give that kind of overview, you know, when you see how much of them are out there, yet yet we can't see them. Do you know what I mean? It kind of just makes the mind boggle a little, a little bit. I'm wondering, Ben, you know, you know, these physicists, MacDonald and I'm not know how to pronounce his name, Kajita. Yeah. Will we, as in our lifetime, see any benefit of you know of their kind of because they must be just like constantly trying to work and work and work these, you know, things out. Will we see any anything come of it in our lifetime? So that's actually a really good question. And I don't think this was covered really well in a lot of the news coverage. Uh, a lot of the, you know, people in the news were saying, oh, you know, this has no practical application, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is a lot about just pure scientific knowledge, just really understanding how the universe works, how stars get rid of energy, um, and, and the like. Uh, but there also are some practical applications that, uh, physicists are, um, working on. One of the collaborators on the Super Okami Okande project that, um, was, um, you know, one of the leaders was, uh, Dr. Kajita. Um, one of the physicists who work on that project told me that there are some applications in ter terms of neutrinos, uh, being used to um, basically monitor the behavior of nuclear reactors because any sort of nuclear reaction in a reactor will release a lot of neutrinos and you can monitor the behavior of reactors by detecting neutrinos. But also people are talking about using neutrinos for um, to monitor nuclear pr proliferation because if there's a secret reactor somewhere, it'll be giving off neutrinos and you might be able to detect, hey, in this part of the world there's apparently a reactor going on now that's you know maybe very um hard to implement practically but you know neutrinos are kind of would be like a giveaway to a secret nuclear reactor and one other final uh application is that since neutrinos mostly pass completely through the earth only a few get um you know collide with something and produce a signal well you can use neutrinos to like take a MRI or a CAT scan of the earth. You can see what's, you know, in these um, regions of our planet that are just impossible for us to get to. You may be able to build up a map of um, the planet and along similar lines, you may be able to detect m mineral deposits. Uh, if you see like a pocket of, you know, like a precious mineral, it may not, you know, um, allow through as many neutrinos as a, you know, place that doesn't have as a rich deposit of minerals. So there are a few kind of those applications uh, that, that scientists are talking about. I was wondering, Ben, as well, is there, you know, with the kind of all this talk, like the Nobel Prize, you know, these neutrinos of, of getting it, is there a branch of the physics that is getting all the glory and is getting all the funding where there's, you know, is there branches where it's just struggling like anything? Is there a one favorite kind of branch of physics at the moment? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. You know, there is big science, in which requires like lots of um, people and massive accelerator facilities. There's small science on a tabletop 
there's everyday science, which is like, say, learning about how, um, you know, shoulders work, like mechanically. And then there's very um, exotic science, which is, I guess, neutrinos would fall under. And I think that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of research going on in all of these areas that people may not realize is happening. We tend to hear about research often in the most exotic you know, topics such as quantum physics and black holes. And we learn about research also at the phase of breakthrough and discovery. And so we just get a small sampling of what's out there. But I think that there's, you know, that science is generally pretty well covered in terms of any type of important thing you could imagine to study is, is being studied somewhere and somehow. Is there, I mean, this is just kind of from a layman's point of view, but Ben, is there anyone, any kind of research that's kind of went down a blind alley and, you know, the kind of physicists have realised, you know, all this kind of time and effort to, to look into it has been a bit worthless? You know, um, that's another good question. So research, just by its very nature, is a very high-risk, high-reward enterprise. Um, the nature of research is that you'll have many blind alleys um, and many failures before success. But often these failures and blind alleys you know, can be the prelude to something big because you could rule out a whole bunch of, you know, situations or scenarios with the blind alleys and the failures can help you get better at succeeding at something. So I guess, you know, you look at the big picture and a lot of what scientists will do will, you know, not be the a breakthrough or an immediate success, but it's more about contributing to a whole body of knowledge, you know, looking at the uh, at a big picture. So I think that that I see all, you know, forms of research, whatever the outcome is, being successful. I mean, just as a quick story, um, a lot of failures in experiments have led to breakthroughs in knowledge. Um, scientists once thought that uh, light was carried by a substance called the ether. And there is an important experiment at the turn of the 20th century that show that the ether actually did not exist and that light just travels through empty, empty space. So that was kind of a null result, in a sense, kind of a failure to find the ether that led to an amazing discovery. <laughs> it just, that's, I guess that's just life in general, isn't it? You only learn by your mistakes <laughs> as well, you know what I mean? God, oh, I'm, oh, even much. just down to my kind of personal level, you know what I mean? So many mistakes in my li- lifetime. Ben... Apart from MacDonald and Kajida, is there anyone in this kind of physics world who we can kind of look out for, who are kind of rising stars out there, who've kind of got their finger on the pulse? You know, um, the way we look at it from, you know, in the scientific world is not in terms of individuals, but more like projects. Like, um, MacDonald was head of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, which had, you know, dozens, hundreds of people working on it. And then... uh, uh, Dr. Kajita was head of um, or leader in the Super Kamiokande project, which again had hundreds of people working there. So I look at it in terms of projects as opposed to people because it really takes sort of a team effort to get um, any of these types of discoveries, you know, realized. And what I would say is that there's um, a whole bunch of neutrino experiments going on right now. A lot of them are going on in Antarctica. So some of the things to watch will be neutrino experiments in Antarctica. And there's also neutrino experiments going on, you know, in, um, on, on the other continents. But, um, 
th- those are the ones that are to look for. Like there's a ton of, of future experiments. Um, I'll just name one in Antarctica. It's called Ice Cube. It's a neutrino observatory in Antarctica that, uh, you know, that and, and maybe some of the other ones are going to be um, definitely, I'm sure they all will be producing a lot of news in, in the coming years, new discoveries about neutrinos. Ben, on a, on a personal note, then, where, where would you like to see research going and say that the, the next 10 years? Yeah, well, neutrinos specifically, um, I think there's still a huge number of unanswered questions with them, like what their exact masses are. And there's a number of interesting theories of them, which may actually unlock some more answers about the nature of the universe. There's some people think that, all right, so you've probably heard of matter and antimatter. Um, every particle like uh, a proton has an antiparticle called an antiproton and if the two of them met they would um, uh, basically annihilate each other and create a whole burst of energy but there's a theory out there that says that neutrinos are their own antiparticle that they're basically the, the same thing and what would that mean about the nature of antimatter because one of the big mysteries in physics is why is there matter why is there antimatter in fact it's a marvel that we exist because in the very beginning of the universe uh, almost equal amounts of matter and antimatter were created there was a small amount of more matter than antimatter if there were equal amounts matter and antimatter would have annihilated each other and there would have been nothing in the universe, but just because there's slightly more matter than antimatter in the universe, that's why we're able to exist. And so neutrinos may be their own antiparticle. And what would that mean about the nature of matter and, you know, and, and, and the reasons for antimatter? So there are some amazing deep questions in neutrino research alone that are going to be exciting to, um, to, to watch in terms of getting answers for them. Ben, it's it's just been fascinating, you know, listening to you kind of, and the excitement as well, because you know, like you say, from, even from <laughs> my point of view, like a layman's term, and totally layman in this kind of field, it is just exciting. Do you know what I mean? Just to kind of, just to be listen to someone who kind of knows about it and who can build up the excitement and talk about it. Ben, listen, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure, Tony. It's been great. Just before, Ben, just before you go, because I want to kind of, you know, point people to Inside Science, your kind of website. Just tell it, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about it. What can people expect if they pop over there? Oh, um, it's a wonderful website. Um, you could visit it by going to www.insidescience.org. And we have stories on all types of discoveries and, um, you know, new developments in science. We have a video that you know talks about how big an asteroid has to be to wipe out uh, all life and the good news is that there's no <laughs> asteroid out there that is big enough to destroy the planet so that's one one bit of good news we have you know some of the latest developments in cancer research uh we have something about um beatboxing you know, the acoustics of beatboxing we have all sorts of science topics not you know just um, uh, neutrinos from we have stories on and videos on um, everything from the everyday to the exotic and uh, you know we hope that um, uh, you know you check it out and, and welcome feedback on our stuff 
Well, Ben, listen, it, it, you know, hopefully we can kind of get together again. You know, I'll keep an eye out on your site. If there's anything kind of tickles me interest there, it'll be lovely to get you back on and just to have a chat of, you know, what's happening in the kind of science world. Oh, oh, sure, sure. We'd be delighted to. Yes, yeah. It's been really great to, you know, have this opportunity to share some of the amazing stuff that we learn every day. Ben, it's been v- lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, Tony, thank you so much. This has been very nice. There you go. Big thank you to Ben. Like I say, I'll put a link on the Ben side, site, Inside Science, director over there. It's just a lovely, lovely guy. And the site's excellent for just kind of dipping in and just kind of finding news, you know, top of the, you know, just come out news about science. Just amazing site. Ben, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction, and it is The End of the War by Django Wexler. Like I say, originally published in Asimov's. Django Wexler is the author of epic fantasy series The Shadow Campaigns from Ace and Rock Books. He graduated from the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh with his degrees in creative writing and computer science and worked for the University in Artificial Intelligence Research. Eventually, he migrated to Microsoft in Seattle, where he now lives with two cats and a teetering mountain, mountain of books. When not writing, he wrangles computers, paints tiny soldiers, and plays games of all sorts. Big thank you to Django for letting us get this story as well. And this story is narrated by Mark Killifold. Now, Mark has just helped out Starships over so much with these narrations. Just top there, top there. Fantastic. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present The End of the War by Django Wexler Officially, the little short-range clear waves are forbidden for obvious security reasons. I don't think any operator leaves for her second tour without one, though. Sometimes it's just to hear another voice out in the black, no matter who it belongs to. It can make the difference between finishing the tour and coming back a ghost. Mine's a junky little affair, duct-taped to the side of my main console. I hesitate a bit before hitting the switch, but my spin-up mobs are reporting the hull composition on this piece-of-shit drifter is even worse than I predicted. I've adjusted the build profile for a low-res encounter, but even so I've got some time. I click the clear wave on, hoping for a familiar voice. It would be nice to talk to Ledra again, or Molly anyone but that bitch Andron. Hello, hello? I say, my voice coming back tinny where the clear wave is patched into my suit audio. Anybody out there? There's a long stretch of nothing. I can hear the whirr of the suit fans, the deep rumble of my own mobs chewing into the skin of this ancient hulk. The latter sound isn't real, of course. No air within a million kilometers to carry it. But the Mobcom's external sensors pick up vibrations in the hull, and the suit translates it into audio so I can make full use of my precious human sensory integration. That is, after all, why I'm here. Why it's worth hauling canned spam like me across the solar system to rendezvous with flying junk. There are some things we still do better than machines. I know there's another Mobcom on the wreck. I wonder if it's Andrin after all, and she's refusing to speak to me on principle. Or someone else, a newbie who hasn't learned the tricks yet, maybe doesn't even have a clear wave. I could be transmitting into nothing. The first scouts tumble out of the spin-ups, tiny mobs the size of grapes, 
with nothing more energetic aboard than the little compressed gas. I key in a pattern from my library, and they jet off into the dark, changing direction with tiny puffs and chroming off the walls of the dead ship's corridors. The map on my console, based on old specs, begins to light up and update itself with real-time data. Hello? Comes a voice from the clear wave. A man's voice. I raise an eyebrow, pointless as that is, in my black-helmeted suit, itself wrapped in the spider-like metal skin of the mobcom. There aren't many male operators. Not the fault of the men, of course. They're as patriotic as the rest of us. But they're just made differently. The male psyche doesn't deal well with the waiting, the confinement, the high-G transits. I've spoken to only a couple of men in the black from our side, and never to a Minoan. Maybe this encounter won't be as dull as I thought. How's it going? I keep my voice deliberately casual. No sense in raising the gender issue right away. He might get offended, and it's not like there's anyone else to talk to. So far, so good, he says. You? About the same. What's your name? I don't think I know you. It's Garrett. I don't know anybody yet. I'm Miranda. Call me Mir. You may as well call me Gar, then. One of my scouts rounds a corner, about halfway up the ship's length, and vanishes in a spray of vaporized metal. The mobcom analyzes telemetry, determines it was hit by a big laser, fusion-powered. He hasn't been here long enough to crank out any really big mobs yet, and there's not enough extra power in his dump to run them in any case. So that's his mobcom. I draw a circle around the spot of the map and retarget the scouts, curving them around through the ancient torn decking to try to get a better view. A few seconds later, one of the little mobs drifts down through an old ventilation shaft and gives me a few frames of video before he blasts it. He's in a big old Mark IV, like a hexagonal slab of metal with eight spider legs on universal joints, twice the size of my Mark IX, but with half the output. It carries a lot more armor, not that that matters. I can see his spin-ups on the walls around him, worm-like tendrils tipped with the blue-white sparks of plasma drills, digging through the hull of the old ship for the material they need. One of them is halfway through building a big, spider-legged mob. I recognize the silhouette even before my console flashes up a recognition. An afterburner three, I'd guess. Maybe a four. Not a great choice for this shitty hulk. First tour? I say. My hands fly across the console, adjusting my build profile to something even faster and more aggressive, trading off power for speed. Some operators don't feel like it's polite to rush a newbie, but have always been of the opinion that what's important is to win and fairness be damned. Second, he says. Didn't see a lot of action on my first, though. Three aborts. I wince. Everyone hates an abort. It means twice as much time in the gel before you get back. Did you see any action at all? A couple of encounters out near Cold Point. Got my ass kicked. Who was it? Arisa and, uh, Jamelia? Ha! I grin. Let me guess. Jemmy got you with a big tunnel swarm right up through the floor. Absolutely. He doesn't sound too embarrassed, which is good. It's important to be able to laugh at your mistakes. She loves that trick. Jemmy's great. She and I have tumbled a few times, 
when we were on the same ship. Jemmy fucks the way she fights in an all-out attempt to batter her partner into submission. It's good fun, but exhausting. She seemed like a fun girl, Gar says. Do you go for tunnelers too? Now you know the rules. I put a bit of tease in my voice. No digging for tactical tips. Sorry. I've got a few small tunnelers in my mix, actually, but more roaches and froggies. A spin-up reports a lucky find, an old emergency battery with a cache of exotica still inside it. Not enough to build any decent ranged weaponry, but plenty for a batch of bouncing bill fours. One of my favorite mobs, cheap and efficient for quick work. They pour out of the spin-up's hatch, notched oblong things, with a magnetic grapple at one end and a bouncer at the other. Like all froggies, they use these tools to alternately pull themselves toward walls and push away, moving on bouncing, irregular paths. A few roaches are ready, too, scuttling insectoid things that stick to any surface they touch. So is this your first round on this tour? I say, as I marshal my mobs. Yeah. Ten days in goo to get here. You? This is day ninety-five. Five encounters so far, four wins. Damn, he says. Just my luck to meet someone on a hot streak. Actually, I'm just coming off the loss, I say. So I'm in a bad mood. Even worse. I send out three groups of mobs, following the paths my scouts relay. The first one is a feint, straight at him, moving slow so he'll see it in plenty of time. The other two hook wide, one crawling up through a hole in an old service duct, the other out through an impact crater onto the outer hull of the wreck, under the fast spin of the stars, and then back in through a shattered laser lens. Another scout dies. I see a glimpse of the afterburner from its last moments. Definitely a three, not a four. Crawling down the corridor with his muzzle smoking like an old-fashioned slug thrower. It's headed right for my feint and I order the mobs to scatter into an ambush formation. My other two groups are worming their way towards Gar's mobcom, roaches cutting through the decking with their integrators when ancient battle damage doesn't provide a convenient route. I send a bouncing bill around a corner, straight at the afterburner. The spider mob blasts it into a swath of superheated ions, and the exotica inside escapes its bottle and detonates when it touches vacuum. The explosion isn't close enough to take out the afterburner, but it blanks the thing's sensors, and the roaches move in, hopping off the walls to cling to the larger mob. They've only got integrators to fight with, little nanotech mouths that start stripping off the afterburner's armor, but that's not really the point. I want Gar's attention fully devoted to this big, stupid mob, as it flails in place and twists its legs to knock the persistent little things away. Another burst vaporizes a pair of roaches, but have already moved on to the main event. My two flanking groups pounce, roaches in the lead, bouncing Bill's ricocheting in a complex pattern designed for maximum confusion. His mob comms lasers stutter, sweeping patterns in the air, and my mobs die one by one, but he's got nothing but his integral weaponry to work with. It's not enough to stop them all. One of the Bills dives in among his spin-ups and ejects its exotica, and my display goes white with multiple explosions. Ouch. Gar's voice is rueful. Nice shot. I flick a scout out of cover to survey the damage. 
A little bit of Exotica isn't enough to seriously damage a brute like the Mark IV, but Gar's spin-ups are all blown to hell, and his external weaponry and sensors are probably seriously degraded. If he sticks around, he'll be at my mercy, since I'll have time to build some seriously dangerous mobs while he fumbles about trying to restart this harvesting. Sorry about that, I say. No harm in being polite after the fact. Are we done here? Yeah, I think so. Nicely done. Try not to let yourself get distracted by the big nasty mobs, especially in a low-res environment, I say. The urge to give advice trumps the thought that I'm helping out the enemy. A nice swarm of little ones can be a lot more effective. I haven't got the compute power board to handle much of a swarm, he says, a little defensively. I wince. If his Mark IV's processors haven't been upgraded, he's probably right. That's a serious disadvantage. I'm surprised they send you out like that. Needs must. You know the drill. He sighs. All right. I'm out. Thanks for the chat, Mir. Likewise. Talk to you soon. Maybe. My scout watches as his mob comm ignites its torch, blasting the decking underneath to a glowing vapor. In a few seconds, he's gone, accelerating out through the skin of the wreck and into the black towards a rendezvous with a waiting corvette and probably a dress-down for whatever passes for a superior officer on the Minoan side of the line. Victory. As easy as that. I heave a sigh, bunch up my long-term build and harvesting profiles, and lean back into my gel seat to wait. Twenty hours later. Corvette 1121 matches course and speed with the wildly tumbling wreck. In the meantime, my mobs have been busy. Huge ship-killer lasers have blossomed across the derelict, like ugly scabs on the torn skin. Each your one-shot exotica-powered weapon, capable of blasting an approaching vessel into scrap millions of clicks away. Another factory has been hard at work constructing thrusters, which will fire the harvester's discarded scrap at high enough velocity to change the course of the wreck to something that will come close enough to our fleet to grab. 1121 only began its approach when I notified it that the ship killers were in place. Functional ships, even corvettes, are too precious to risk the possibility of enemy presence. The salvage isn't anything to write home about. It's a seventh-generation wet ship, probably a destroyer. The second or third-generation ships were profligate with materials, heavy metals, exotica, even organics, and are thus the most valuable targets for harvesting. By the seventh generation, resources were already getting scarce, and there's less worth digging out of the old hull. Command probably wouldn't have sent me after it if it hadn't been on a congenial course, not requiring much energy to make the intercept. I satisfy myself that all my mobs know what they're supposed to be doing, then push myself away from the wreck with my own fusion torch. The mob comm bursts free of the tattered metal skin of the old wet ship, spinning off into the black. I kill the spin with a motion as reflexive as scratching an itch, and jet toward the corvette. 1121 is a cold ship, of course. No biosphere, no humans aboard. The actual working part of the vessel isn't much bigger than my mobcom, though it's packed full of a lot more compute power and weaponry, since it doesn't have to carry all the support systems to haul around a bag of meat. 
The secondary and much larger part of the Corvette is storage, where it keeps all the energy and raw materials it needs to top me off after a fight. I let the mobcom talk to it, working at the details of intercept and material transfer, and check the Corvette's memory for new orders from command. Sure enough, they've got another target for me. Not much of a hop, only six days' transit. I run the numbers in my head. That'll put me at day 102, which means they'll probably try to squeeze in yet another encounter before my 120 days of tour are up. It's a depressing thought. When I started as an operator, a tour longer than 60 days was considered a hardship post. Now they're doing studies to see if we can handle 180 days in the black. Someone at command is running the equations, figuring out how much combat effectiveness we'll gain versus how many operators will ghost out. I have a nasty feeling I already know what they're going to come up with. A few hours later, I'm all tanked up with fresh spin-ups loaded and a disposable booster strapped to my rear. Drugs flood my system, working their weird magic, and the gel seat reclines into a couch. A suit floods all my inner cavities with padding. Then the booster ignites, and acceleration rolls onto me like a crushing, familiar blanket. I lose the next encounter. It's on a sixth-generation cruiser, big, but still low-res, and my opponent is a woman named Nina. She natters on over the Claire wave, all about her partner back in the Minoan Ark and how well they get along. Personally, I think she's a bit of an idiot, but I leave the transmitter on. Company is company, however inane. Maybe her casual front lulls me into a false sense of security. She pulls a beautiful trick, giving one of my scouts a look at her early on with the seeds of a second-tier economy already planted. Then her perimeter firms up, and I can't get another picture. I figure I've got some time and go for a second tier myself, only to find her swarming me with cheap, fast mobs. She must have switched paths right after I got my picture, converting from tech to rush. I fight back, improvising frantically. I go down harder than Gar did, but in the end, I go down. I offer Nina more or less sincere congratulations as my mob calm blasts away, already wondering if I can steal her trick for myself. Without a booster, it's another three days before I make intercept with a Corvette, 1703 this time. It re-equips me and bangs the dings out of my mobcom while I download new orders. As expected, there's another assignment. I glance at the parameters and swear. Seventeen days transit? You motherfuckers. That would put me well over 120 days when I have to fight. Very much against regs. Bastard vacuum-sucking whore daughters. But of course, command is several hours distant by laser, and there's no point in shouting at the Corvette, or indeed in arguing at all. That's the thing about being an operator. You can ghost, or you can do as you're told. And I'm not going ghost anytime soon. My suit's ping pulls me from the drug-addled reverie in which I spend most of my acceleration time. Still five days to the target, the booster consuming itself as it slows me down to match velocities. Not much to do, not much I can do, given the G's I'm pulling, stuff full of gel like an overfull cargo pod. But the suit tells me another mobcom is coming into range on a tangent trajectory. They're hard to detect by design when they're not boosting and so it only warns me a couple of minutes before my colleague comes into laser range. I check the IDs. It's Annie, 
an old friend. We have a window of a few minutes before our diverging paths take us out of easy communication range. Annie, I say, or rather subvocalize, my body pinioned as it is. The suit is smart enough to fill in the audio. It's been ages. Have they got us on opposing schedules or something? Hey, Amir. Annie's voice is real. She's in the zero-G coasting section of her flight. Something like that. How's tricks? Five and two this run. They've got me staying out past the end of my tour. But this should be the last one. I'm jetting off to a fresh start, she says with mock enthusiasm. You sound terribly thrilled. First days of a tour are always the worst. I spent the last week in bed with Micah and Jane, and now I'm back in the black with nothing but my poor fingers to keep me company. I chuckle. Annie is speaking metaphorically, of course. We can't use her fingers with the suits on, but, like the clear waves, no operator goes out under a second tour without making a few surreptitious modifications. There's damn little else to do, blasting through the black with the weight of a mountain on your chest. You made it all the way back to the Ark, then? Yeah, Annie says. Took up half my leave with transit time, but it was worth it to see a bit of green for a week of non-stop sex, of course. Annie can be worse than Jemmy. Still, she's stuck to her partners, which is more than most operators can say. Relationships are hard when you spend two-thirds of your time hopping from derelict to derelict with only your mobs at your side. The suit pings. Two minutes. So, what's the gossip? I ask. The usual. Long tours and lots of grumbling. You want the good news or the bad news? Since when is there good news? Annie sighs. <sighs> Two more ghosts came back. Beatrice and Iffy. I'm silent for precious seconds. Shit. I know. I saw it coming with Beatrice, at least. You know what she's... What she was like. Yeah, still. I pictured a mobcom making an automated rendezvous with a wet ship, hatches opening up to reveal... What? Either nothing, a cockpit that had been cracked up to the black, or else a limp body still swathed in its suit. A ghost. Everybody knew how to do it, if you couldn't take it anymore. It was easy enough to override your suit's safeguards, make it give you whatever cocktail of drugs you wanted, or else to just pull off your helmet and open the hatch and get a look at the stars firsthand. I always thought that was what I would do if it came down to it. it seemed more honest than dreaming my way out. The mobcom can find its own way home, of course. Operators can be replaced, but nobody's making fusion bottles anymore. Well, I say, after a few more seconds have slipped away, is there good news? Depends, if you believe the rumors. Sounds juicy. Maybe. Annie seems dubious. Apparently the high muckety-mucks at command are all in a tizzy. The science types are supposed to have come up with a new weapon. Some kind of tachyon wormhole something something. I don't really remember. They say it could end the war. Blast the Minos out of the system once and for all. I snort. <laughs> I've, I've heard that before. Me too. But there were certainly a lot of uniforms running around. Well, I'm not going to start planning my retirement party just yet. 
The suit pings. Thirty seconds. Me either. You heading back to the Ark after your tour? Probably not. There's nobody waiting for me. Easier to spend my fleeting free time on the closest wet ship and not waste most of it in transit. Pity. It really is nice to see the plants and such. Micah and Jane would probably have you over for dinner. I'll think about it. Five seconds. End of window. Catch you next time, Annie. Sap some minos for me. The connection cut. I would take a deep breath if my lungs weren't full of gel. End the war, she says. Like that hasn't been tried before. I remember at least a little bit from school. Dropping rocks on Manoa that were supposed to end the war, but they just did the same to us. Each big battle was supposed to end the war, wrecking more and more ships until there wasn't enough left for more battles. Just us, operators in mobcoms blasting through the black, scrabbling in the rubble. Thinking about it takes me down into a dark place, the kind of place that makes people ghost out, so I don't think about it. I turn on my suit's unofficial enhancements, feel a pleasant buzz, and drift back into fantasy, lying between Annie and Jemmy, trading off kisses, fingers tangled in my hair and running hot across my skin. Trees around us, open sky above, a warm breeze, and the smell of salt water. It's just a fantasy. It can be as impossible as I want. Hello out there. Hello again. It's Scar. Fancy meeting you here. We're in a big chunk of a sixth-generation cruiser, larger than our previous battlefield, but still low-res. There aren't many high-res wrecks still out there, at least not where we can get to them, though periodically the unpredictable orbits of the debris-strewn inner system will spit one out in our direction. I load my usual profile into my spin-ups, and try to work myself into a fighting frame of mind. I thought you would have been off shift by now, Gar says, unless I counted wrong. I ought to be. Command, you asked me to stretch myself a bit. Ouch. My sympathies. Yeah, well, I'd appreciate it if you could make this as quick as the last time. He laughs. Double ouch. I mean, if you just want to roll over, I would object. Every operator has been tempted at some point. It would certainly be a lot easier if we could just trade off, instead of fighting it out every time. But Command won't have it, and it's common knowledge that our mobcoms spy on us, upload our battle records into the big iron back on the Ark. A little unauthorized communication is one thing, but throw a fight, and there'll be hell to pay. My spin-ups report that there are more trace metals on the skin of the Hulk than I anticipated, and sensors show a few Exotica trap batteries still active. I make the call to go for second tier, devoting half my resources to building a defensive perimeter, while the rest go into putting together fancier factories and harvesters, bootstrapping my construction ability beyond the primitive tools I'd brought with me. Can I ask you something? Gar says. Sure, unless it's tactical. He chuckles. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why'd you become an operator? I blink, taken back. I, you know, I'm not sure I remember. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It seems like a thousand years ago, though it's barely a dozen. I should ask you the same thing. You must have had more options than I did. Most women, Circean women anyway, I have no idea how the Minoans run things, serve somewhere out in the black. There are never enough crews for the wet ships, vacuum mechanics, salvage experts, a thousand other specialties, all in dire demand. The men, by and large, stay in the ark, taking care of the food and running the creches. A few serve on the wet ships where the accelerations are lower and there's room to move around. Being an operator means being out at the sharp end. Only a few have the right profile to spend their lives locked inside a tiny mobcom. On the other hand, paradoxically, it's a lot safer to go into battle in a fusion-powered autonomous factory surrounded by armor and fail-safes than it is to be a mechanic on a wet ship crawling over rusty metal with only a salvage suit and a frayed safety line between you and the black. Most operators ghost out then die in combat or by accident. Not really, Gar says. No options at all, actually. My psych test said I had the profile for this. I was as surprised as anyone. Lucky you. It's not so bad, though I, I guess that's my abnormal psychology talking. He sighs. It's it's just strange, talking to the other operators. Back on the Ark, it's all Remember Naviento and Death to Baby Killers and Everyone Hates the Circeans. Out here, I smile in sympathy. We all go through this realization sooner or later. Out here, it's just a job, I finish for him. I know, that's the secret of the operator's. Weird, isn't it? I trained for years, but nobody told me that. I'm not sure they know, back on the arcs, 
or if they can believe it. Command has always been excellent at ignoring inconvenient facts. What about you? Do you hate Circeans? Not particularly. I've never been very warlike. Until psych testing, I wanted to be a crash instructor. My suit pings. Mobs incoming. Gar and I are playing out the oldest variation in the operator's book. Rush versus Tech. You went for a quick swarm. I'm building for a long game. If my perimeter holds him back long enough, my bigger, meaner mobs will crush him. If not, it'll be a short encounter after all. Gar learns quick, I have to admit. His tactics have a subtlety he didn't display the last time we met, curving his mobs to probe my defenses from multiple angles. I hold choke points in the corridors with laser bugs, little turrets that burrow into the fabric of the walls to protect themselves. He swarms them with roaches, bright flashing beams carving his mobs apart until they close to use their integrators. I fall back to a second line, leaving behind exotica bombs that vaporize the leading edge of his forces. His equipment still isn't up to snuff. The Mark IV's limited compute power can only push the swarms in a straight line, not deploying them in writing formations to maximize sensor confusion. We've passed the point of no return, and I'm not sure he even knows it. My tier two factories are online, hulking efficient matrices that crank out larger mobs. I assemble a squad of Stalker Fives, big caniform brutes with power claws and reactive armor. They bound out on magnetic pads, loping through the ongoing skirmish, scattering the roaches. When the smaller mobs try to grab on, the Stalker's armor pulses hot and spiky, and ruined roaches fall away. Oh, shit, Gar says, laughing. That can't be good. The stalkers fight their way to his mobcom, tearing apart whatever he throws in their way. When they reach him, one of them staggers under the impact of the mobcom's lasers, but doesn't fall. The others tear into his spin-ups, wrecking his ability to produce mobs and circle around the mobcom itself. Done? Done, he says. One more question before I go. I give an exaggerated sigh. If you must. Have you ever killed anybody? I pause again. I'm not sure I want to answer the question. We're supposed to, of course. More accurately, we're supposed to take every opportunity to destroy irreplaceable enemy mobcoms. The death of the operator is a strictly secondary concern. But precisely because the mobcoms are so valuable, chances to destroy them don't come along very often. If I unleash the stalkers on the Mark IV, they could certainly take it to pieces eventually. But it takes only a flick of a torch to blast away from a wreck at a speed no mob could hope to match. Not recently, I say. You need a high-res battlefield to even give you a shot at it. But you have, he says. Twice. It's something I think about to this day, when I'm out in the black. For all that it was my patriotic duty. Gar is quiet for a while. Then he says, Okay. Thanks. His torch ignites, and I'm alone in the wreck with my mobs. I wonder what he wanted. 
We all get a little philosophical sometimes. It's one of the hazards of the profession. But too much of it puts you at risk of ghosting out. I find myself hoping that's not where Gar is heading. It'd be nice to get a chance to talk to him again. When I make the rendezvous with the Corvette, it informs me that my tour is over. At last. And asks if I want to take my leave on the Ark, current transit time, 35 days, or on the nearest wet ship, a little more than two days away. I opt for the latter, and it makes me a small booster, just enough to make the intercept with the cruiser. Like all wet ships, it's enormous. A fat-bellied behemoth of scarred metal and ceramic that dwarfs my spidery little mobcom. Even the corvette would look like a minnow beside it. Once my booster uses itself up and ejects, the cruiser takes me in its grip, pulling me gently but firmly into its maw with invisible lines of force. It's hard to escape the sensation of being eaten alive. Getting out of the mobcom, on the other hand, is a little bit like being born. First the suit has to retract all the wriggly adapters it has plugged into every orifice. It's surprisingly easy to forget that they're there, out in the black, and the sudden reminder is disconcerting. Next I get out of my gel seat, moving my legs for the first time in 120 days. Drugs and artificial stimulation keep the medical effects of prolonged immobility at bay, but it still feels like rediscovering a limb I didn't know I had. Then the main hatch opens, and I pull off my helmet and take an actual oxygenated breath. Procedures for dealing with returning operators are clear. There is no one waiting for me, just an empty room with a storage locker. It smells like mold and failing air recyclers, but the very fact of smell is another revelation. The suit pulls away from my skin with the wet sucking sound of breaking seals, and I leave it in a rubbery pile on the floor. A band of black, skin-tight stuff remains tight around my wrist. That's the pharmacopoeia, which will keep supplying the drugs I can no longer survive without. One corner of the room is equipped with a shower head and a drain, and I stumble underneath it and turn the water on full blast. The screaming, stinging sensation on my skin makes me want to curl into a ball, but I force myself to stay upright, tears filling my eyes. They have to fall the normal way instead of being wicked aside by hair-thin suit fibers. After a long, long time, I turn the water off and open the storage locker. I dry myself with a fluffy towel inside, then remove the uniform they've fabricated for me. It's just in my size, of course, but it takes me a while to remember how clothes are supposed to work. The thing has buttons. Honestly. Once I've got it sorted out to my satisfaction, I open the outer door and step into the cruiser's hold. It's full of all kinds of junk. Broken machines, wrecked equipment, a few other freshly fabricated structures. Two officers, a man and a woman, are waiting for me, wearing the same black and gold uniform as I am. They bring their hands up and salute, and long, dulled training makes me return it. I can't stop staring at them. The little folds of their skin, the flickers of their eyes, the slight movements of their faces... I remember vaguely that this is rude, 
but I can't bring myself to care. Welcome back, Lieutenant Commander Miranda, the man says. I hope you had a successful trip. I should say something, shouldn't I? The physicality of the conversation without the intervention of suit and clearwave is distracting. Thank you. That's usually safe. Nothing happens for a while. That may have been the wrong thing to say after all. Then the man coughs. Um, Lieutenant Goshawk will take you to your quarters. Follow me, sir, the woman says. I trail behind her, moving like a recently reanimated corpse. I raid a room with a bed and a table, my own toilet, and a companion. Mine is a boy named Varn, wearing a private's uniform and an expression of unshakable determination. He bustles around me, offering me food and water like he was a personal servant. But we both know what he's there for, and before long I'm eager to get down to business. I wonder if there's a creche school back on the Ark where they trained these boys, or if it's just part of the standard military program. It seems like it would be a lesson worth sitting in on. I can't help but imagine a grizzled drill sergeant coaching his pupils on the finer points of the use of fingers, tongue, and cock. However he was instructed, Varn clearly was near the top of his class, and he leaves me sweaty and aching pleasantly. When we're finished, he dresses quietly and slips out. He'll be at my disposal for the duration of my stay. Rank hath its privileges, I suppose. Later I sleep. I must sleep while I'm out on tour, but it happens during the drugged reveries of transit, so I'm never aware of drifting off or waking up. If I dream, I don't remember afterward. This time, though, I dream. I blame Gar. I remember my first kill shot, almost an accident, back on my second tour. I was still half green, and up against a veteran named Lily, but she'd arrived at the wreck nearly five minutes after me and was struggling to overcome that handicap. That's unusual. The big iron on the Ark plays the great chess game of dispatching mobcoms against its Minoan counterpart, and since all the pieces are public, hard to hide when a fusion drive lights up, encounters are usually even matched, or they're not fought at all. Lily probably should have cut her losses and run, but she told me she was on a bad streak, and didn't want another failure on her record. She waited too long. I latched a crawler pregnant with exotica on the underside of her mob, set it off, and the blast cracked her fusion bottle. Nothing left but vapor. I never dream about the second time. There are places even my subconscious doesn't want to go. Over the next few days, I wander the cruiser, exploring. Like all wet ships, it's an ancient amalgamation of designs and repairs, full of unpredictable passages and detours. Everything has been fixed or replaced a hundred times over, and nothing works quite the way it should. Most of its bulk is devoted to the maintenance of a livable biosphere for the thirty or so crew members who spend almost all of their time tending the machinery that keeps them alive and breathing. That's the problem with canned spam in the black. It takes so much effort to keep us going, there's no time left for anything else. As I shake myself out of my daze, 
I become ravenous for human contact. That's half the reason companions are provided. Otherwise, operators would be forever dragging crew members into dark alleys when they have duties to attend to. I alternate between fucking to exhaustion and grilling him about what's going on back on the Ark. Less because I want the news and more for the simple pleasure of conversation. Much of what he has to say is banal, but he repeats what Annie told me about Command's obsession with some kind of new toy. On the tenth day of my leave, another mobcom arrives. I can hardly contain myself when I see that it's Jemmy, and I'm already making plans for the two of us to seriously test the limits of poor Varn's stamina. She docks, but she doesn't open her mobcom, and for a minute, a sudden fear grips me. Maybe Jemmy's not in there at all. Maybe it's just a ghost. Fortunately, it's not long before I get a call on my room's data system. So strange to have to go to a particular place to interface with it instead of having it all around you and hear her familiar, cheery voice. Mir, is that seriously you up there? Are you hiding from me? I tell her, teasing. Scared to come out? Please! You have no idea how much I would like to wriggle out of this thing. What's stopping you? She sighs. Orders. I got a packet from my Corvette. You're not going to like them. I'm not going to like them. A sudden awful feeling wells up from my stomach. What do your orders have to do with me? But the orders are already scrolling across my screen. On arrival at Cruiser 17, do not disembark. Another operator will be on leave there. Transmit these orders at once. I blink back sudden tears, catching only snatches of the rest. Proceed immediately together. Utmost importance. Yeah, Gemi says. Sorry it was you, Mir. I'm surprised at the strength of my reaction. It's not so much the thought of getting back into the mobcom. I was going to do that again, sooner or later. As it is the sense of betrayal. Command has pulled some awful shit on me before, but nothing like this. So there'll be no delightful tumble with Jemmy. No more time to relax and enjoy Varn's attention. Nothing but a hustle to get back into the black. I could refuse. For once, I have the option. I'm not in my mobcom with its secret recorders and remote overrides. If I lock the door to my room, what can they really do? Break it down and arrest me? So what? They can shoot me in the head and feed me to the recycler, is what they can do. I know that, obviously. Refusing a direct order is treason. But the impulse still remains. It's not all bad, Gemi says. Take a look at the bottom. I glance down. Upon the successful completion of this mission, you and the other operator will be eligible for an extended leave of not less than 360 days. Shit. The thought leaves me a little breathless. To have three tours worth of leave, I could go back to the Ark, walk in the gardens, spend some of the ration allocations that pile up uselessly in my account. They aren't kidding, are they? Nope, Jemmy says. 
So I'm also glad it was you waiting for me. You're the best operator I know, and we have got to win this one. Back into the mobcom. Back into the tiny universe of suit and control board. Systems flickering to life and running through their bootstrap sequences. Getting in isn't nearly as bad as getting out. The suit is polite enough to grow its interfaces slowly. I settle back into the gel seat and snap my helmet in place. The suit overrides my autonomic reflexes, and I stop breathing, tiny fibers sneaking through my skin to oxygenate my blood directly. The cruiser has already built me a booster, a terrifyingly large one. I can see Jemmy's mobcom, similarly equipped, and I bring up the laser link. Ready? she says. Just about. The cruiser pushes us free. Once we reach safe distance, the booster's programming takes over. Once again, I'm packed full of acceleration gel. Fibers snake around my eyes, tweaking the vitreous humor so they don't pop like grapes. The torches ignite. Whee! Jemmy says, her voice computer-generated now. Transit time. Thirty-six days. I spend some of my more lucid moments reviewing information about the target. It's a big one, a third-generation battleship. The General Randolph, from back when ships had names. Until recently, it was locked in a complicated, eccentric orbit in the ruins of the inner system. But a recent close pass by still molten Manoa slingshotted in our direction. According to preliminary scans, it's almost ridiculously rich in resources— High-grade metals, bottled exotica, even a ton of ancient tech still intact. The ultimate high-res environment. I marvel at the profligacy of the early days of the war, when such a wreck would simply be left to spin in the black. The mission profile is odd, too. Normally, I skip that part of my orders because it's always the same. Suppress any enemy presence construct anti-ship defenses and thrusters, wait for contact. This time, though, we're to concentrate on securing a particular sector of the ship without damaging it more than necessary, and then deliver a particular payload. Some kind of sensor and comm relay, as best as I can tell, from the very old days. We're to hold that sector at all costs, even if it means giving up an advantage in the fight overall. Weird, I tell Jemmy. Very weird, she agrees. But this whole thing is weird. You ever done a tandem before? No. We talked about it a little in training, but we're spread so thin these days. Me either. Think there'll be two of them? Have to be. Command wouldn't send us into a mismatch, I hope. The same goes for the Minoans. Who are you hoping for? Someone new and incompetent, Jemmy says, with a computer-mediated laugh. <laughs> Normally I'm up for a good fight, but with three tours of leave at stake, I just want to get this over and done with. Likewise, I wonder if Gar will be there. The second time I made a kill shot, the time I had a choice, is the one I try hard not to think about. This time, I was the veteran, on my sixth tour, and my opponent was a girl just out of her training. Her first encounter 
still uncomfortable in the second skin of the suit and mobcom. Someone had given her a clear wave, though, and she had introduced herself, hesitantly, as Emily. I was near the end of my tour. Tired, eager to be home, we were on a medium-res cruiser, with enough exotica lying around to build some really dangerous weapons. I was pushing her back, corridors filling with blasted mobs and bolts of coherent energy, but it was taking forever. I built a diamond, too, a crystalline mob with an exotica core and focusing lens to generate a laser from the energy flood. A suicidal charge by a squad of my other mobs carried the thing deep into her defenses within sensor range of her mobcom. I had originally intended to use it on her factories, blast her economy to ruins, but I can't get near enough to detect them through the jammers she set up. Her mobcom stood out, though. Fusion bottle, humming. The diamond was stuck in the center of a disintegrating pack of mobs, seconds from getting blasted, and I had a choice. She should have put up more shielding. An amateur mistake, but easy to make, if all you're used to is low-res battles with roaches. I took the shot. The exotica blast destroyed the struggling mobs around it, and bumped its laser far past the range my mobcom could have managed. The beam slashed through the decks and walls like they were made of mist, hit Emily's old Mark III, and punched right through. It was supposed to end quickly, in a bright flash of fusion. But the Mark III had enough time to eject its bottle, which detonated outside the wreck, and I could hear Emily screaming. The laser had slashed her nearly in half, blood and gore bubbling and freezing as the vacuum rushed into her shattered mobcom and threw a ruined suit. It was several seconds before the clear wave cut out, but it didn't seem to matter. I could still hear her shriek of pain and terror ringing in my ears. Command gave me a commendation with an extra thirty days' leave. We finish our deceleration burn, using up the last of the boosters, and make impact with the General Randolph. I try to put us as close to the objective sector as I can, but the ancient ship is tumbling, and it's hard to match up my old maps to its scarred and pitted hull. Jemmy and I end up boring into the maze of room and corridors separated by several hundred meters and a considerable distance from the sector we've been instructed to take. There isn't time to relocate, either. Two more mobcoms hit the wreck only seconds after we do. As usual, Minoan command is as astute as ours. I eject my spin-ups, which immediately begin to report the rich concentrations of trace minerals and accessible exotica. Punching up the high-res build profile gives me an unexpected feeling of nostalgia. It's been a decade since I got to fight in a wreck so replete with materials and watching the plans for high-end mobs slide across my vision sends me back to my days as a recruit, barely out of training. I shake my head and concentrate on the task at hand. Jemmy and I had talked strategy while in transit. It's the first time either of us has ever had an objective other than a flat-out victory, and we agreed it means that at least one of us should take a more defensive approach. Given Jemmy's tendency to go straight for the throat, that means me. After my usual burst of scouts, ready in a few seconds, given all the material at my disposal, I start pushing hard for Tier 2, 
plowing every gram of resource I can extract into building bigger, faster harvesters and factories. In theory, pure tech will give you an exponentially increasing power curve, as long as the resources hold out, and as long as your enemies let you do it. Jemmy sticks to quick and cheap mobs, blasting out swarms of roaches, froggies, and low-end spinners and spiders. Her horde bounces and scuttles through the derelict's corridors, cutting through doors where an ancient failsafe tried to contain the hull breach that ultimately killed the General Randolph. They secure the target sector early and push on toward where the two Minoan mobcoms made entry. I thumb the clear wave, out of habit. Hello? Hello, 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 Jemmy croons, already in the frantically excited state that battle brings out in her. Anybody out there? I'm here. It's Gar again. I wonder if Command is sending me out against him deliberately, because I keep winning. My colleague is Vivian. This is her first tour, and she hasn't got herself a clear wave yet. Ah, Jemmy says. Poor little girl. Hagar, I say. I'm here. What are you doing back out so soon? Orders, I heave a sigh, which Jemmy and Gar immediately echo. At least we'll have some fun for once, Jemmy says. Plenty to work with. Keep your heads down, kids. Not bad advice. The chance of someone getting killed is much higher in a high-res environment where the mobs can get large and dangerous quickly. My suit feeds me digests from Gemmy's network, showing your mobs engaging the enemy. Vivian seems to be handling the initial defense, which means Gar is probably following my fast tech strategy. They don't seem to be making any special push for the comm station, the critical sector from our orders. I wonder if the Minoans knew about whatever is so special, or if they're just here after a rich prize. That leaves me a tactical choice. Pretend that sector isn't important and hope they ignore it, or plant my main defense there. I decide to rely on brute force instead of misdirection. My tier twos are online, and I build myself an armada of rolling harvesters and constructor mobs. Then it's time for a very rare maneuver, physically relocating myself. In an ordinary mission, there's rarely a reason to move the mobcom around, it's deadly slow compared to the mobs, and one place is usually as good as another to set up defenses. Today, though, if I'm going to be building my bastion around this comm station, I damn well want to be inside it when we start throwing high-end mobs around. It takes a few minutes for my mobcom to get there, clanking ponderously on its spider-like legs and burning through hull material with its lasers when it can't fit. My mobs beat me there and I plant them in a rough semicircle, facing Gar and Vivian and outside this sector where we were instructed not to damage. The harvesters get to work, looting the hull material for metal and exotica, and I direct the constructors to start putting together Tier 3 factories. The exponential curve ticks up another notch. In the comm station itself, I send a roach to upload the package command gave us, a dense wad of ancient bytecode. To my astonishment, the archaic machinery hums to life. The comm station still works, near-miraculously preserved and powered by a huge exotica battery that must be one of the ship's primary reserves. Suddenly, my orders make a lot more sense. 
we're not just here to salvage an old machine, but to do something. Possibilities start to run through my mind, but I ruthlessly shunt them away. Whatever it is, it's not my problem. My problem is the Minoans, whose swarms are getting nastier by the minute. Their early mobs have been joined by larger Tier 2 models, armed with lasers and plasma cutters instead of paltry short-ranged integrators. Jemmy is falling back, frantically upgrading her own plant and picking off her larger opponents by sheer weight of numbers. But it's time I joined the fight. My own Tier 2 factories are still waiting where I came in, and I set them to crank out a continuous stream of heavy mobs and report to Jemmy. She takes command of a squad of Stalker Fives and sends me a squeal of gratitude, and moments later battle is joined in earnest in the dead corridors of the ancient battleship. Big mobs tear one another to pieces, vaporize one another with lasers, and explode in bursts of released exotica. The comms machinery is doing something, humming away to itself as it executes command's program. My attention is on the defensive line I'm building. I reforge the metal of General Randolph's corridor walls into diamond-hard composites, stretch them into barricades bristling with laser turrets. In front of them, my constructors lay traps, exotica bombs, and clusters of tiny integrators that can reduce a big mob to gray goo. Behind, waiting in front of the comm station, is my reserve of Tier three mobs. They're behemoth twos, huge things nearly the size of my mob comm, with fourth with force shields and multiple adaptive weapon systems. When they move, my suit feeds me echoing clanks as the walls vibrate. Yee-haw! Jemmy shouts, launching a frantic assault aimed right at Vivian's mobcom. It's not a tactically sound maneuver, but it catches the Minoans off guard, and for a few minutes all the resources are devoted to encircling and destroying her assault force. In the meantime, Jemmy pulls back, shifting her mobcom so my new barriers will be between her and the enemy. Her new factories are ready, and she starts putting together flying squads of stalkers and sending them on wide hooks skirting the main battlefield. I like the behemoths, she says to me on a private channel. You've got your three-tier up and running? Full blast. I'm still building out factories. This is beyond even high res. My harvesters are sucking in raw material at a furious rate, but the General Randolph is a treasure store that I could only dream about in an ordinary encounter. There's a trick I want you to try. Build yourself a squad of diamonds and toss them out through a hole in the outer hull. See if we can get behind them. The beams are powerful enough to cut in and do some damage. I blink. It's a good idea, but... I'm on it. I shake my head again. Not the time for second thoughts. Gar and Vivian's horde, reinforced and reorganized, goes on the offensive again. They run into my defensive line, and the front ranks just evaporate, blasted to vapor by traps and turrets. My fire tears the complicated grid of corridors to shreds, leaving a zone of free-floating debris. Ouch, Gar says. That was like sticking my hand in a stove. Is that the best you've got? I grin inside my helmet. Not hardly. Bring it on, he yelps. Shit, you sneaky little... Ha! Jemmy crows. One of her stalker squads got close enough to do some damage to Gar's factories, and he diverts mobs to counterattack. 
It's not a devastating blow, not here, with rebuilding so easy, but it slows him down, sending out waves of unguessable purpose that barely register on my mobcom sensors. I build a squad of diamonds, one-shot laser bombs of immense power, and send them on a complex path that will take them out through a rent in the hull. Jemmy, safely relocated behind my perimeter, settles down to build a steady stream of mid-range mobs to supplement her forces. Vivian launches another attack on my line, with the same lack of success. When Gar throws another wave of small mobs against me, I start to guess that they're covering for some other scheme. Not much I can do, with so many of my resources committed to defense, but Jemmy takes the initiative again, sending a flying wedge of fast-moving spiderwebs deep into enemy territory. Once again, they fight their way in close to Gar's mobcom before his defenses annihilate them. Look! Jemmy crows, shooting me images. Only one diffuser! My suit helpfully highlights known enemy mobs and installations, and I can see she's right. Gar has built a diffuser, a mob that projects a defense field that spreads out the energy from beam weapons, but only one. Jemmy's brief attack has left the turtle-shaped thing glowing a faint blue-green. Five diamonds ought to be able to punch right through it, Jemmy says. You can take him out. Risky, I say. My stomach flip-flops. If he's got another one hidden, it'll all be for nothing. We're accomplishing our mission just by sitting here, Jemmy says. The calm machinery seems to have finished his task, or else is waiting in readiness for a response. I have no idea how long we were supposed to hold it for. If we are going to actually win this fight, we need to take a few risks. I close my eyes. My diamonds, flying free in the black outside the General Randolph's hull, have maneuvered to a position where they have the closest shot at Gar's mobcom. He's still fairly close to the surface of the wreck, with only a few metal decks between him and the outside. Jemmy's right, damn her. Damn Gar for not keeping his defenses up. Damn me for even thinking twice about it. I'll try. I twitch my hands, entering the firing coordinates. Jemmy sends her mobs out to occupy the Minoan's attention, and the dead corridors of the bulk once again erupt with laser fire and detonations. The diamonds maneuver a bit into better positions. I thumb the clear wave on, thinking I ought to say something, but click it off again without speaking when I can't think of what. The first diamond fires, releasing its exotica and blossoming into a brilliant sphere of energy. Tiny components in a millionth of a second before they're consumed by the explosion focus that power into a coherent beam and direct it down into the ancient battleship. The laser cuts the decking into vapor and hits the hemispherical field projected by the diffuser, splashing into a curling blue-green mist. The diffuser's glow doubles, then doubles again as two more diamonds fire, the combined energy of their beams coursing through its overworked circuits. The fourth one burns it out entirely, in an explosion that sends fragments pinging off Gar's mobcom. Then the fifth diamond goes off, its beam sweeping a narrow arc in the fraction of a second of its existence, slashing a path of destruction through Gar's exposed factories and harvesters in a wide semicircle and missing his mobcom by meters. There's a long moment of silence. Then, Shit, says Gar. Shit! Mir, Gemi says. What the hell happened? 
He's crippled, I say. My behemoths lurch into motion. Hit him now. She sends her mobs forward, too, but I'm not sure it'll be enough. Normally, blasting an enemy's factories to bits is enough to win an encounter. But with all the resources he's got in easy reach, Gar will be able to bootstrap himself back up again in no time, especially with Vivian to help. And with so much of my force locked into a static defense, I'm not sure Jemmy and I can overwhelm him. Still, no regrets. I had a choice, and this time I made the right one. Mir, Gar says, as the behemoths join the battle. I wonder if he knows what I did. I don't want to talk about it, not with Jemmy on the line. What? I'm really sorry about this. I have only an instant to grasp what happens next. A tunneler mob, digging through solid metal, slipping between decks and insinuating itself past all my barriers. Not enough payload for more than a nuisance attack, except that my mobcom is sitting in the comm station, and under that comm station is one of the biggest exotica stores on the whole derelict ship. The tunneler must have attached itself ages ago, working with its integrator to turn the battery into an enormous bomb. Now my sensors pick up the swelling energy, far too late to do anything about it. Still, no regrets. The world goes white. I open my eyes. I must not be dead, after all. My suit confirms this. There's no link to the mobcom, no network or even clearwave connection, but it flashes diagnostics for my stupid, fragile meat body. One leg broken, soft tissues all over damaged by shockwave. Nothing it can't fix, given time, and it's already made a good start. I've been unconscious for nearly five hours. I'm floating free, an odd sensation. All our encounters take place in null gravity, of course, but I'm usually strapped securely into my gel seat. Now I'm in a small, dark space, lit only by dozens of flickering indicator lights. By their faint glow, I can make it a control console, a seat, and a suited figure. I'm inside a mobcom, but not a familiar one. Someone has plugged my suit into a power line. It can keep me alive indefinitely on its own, as far as food and water and medicine goes, but it needs external power to do it. I wonder if I'm a prisoner. I've never heard of an operator being captured before. The suited figure sensing my movement beckons me over. I pull myself toward the console, and there's a comm cable waiting. My suit isn't designed to interface with Minoan equipment, but the other operator has been making some basic modifications, and it fits the jack in my gauntlet. It's me, Gar says. Are you all right? I'll live, I say. What happened? Your mob comm was cracked wide open, but it managed to eject its bottle before it went up. I had some mobs take a look, and when they saw your suit was intact, I brought you back here. There's something tight and unpleasant in his voice. 
Lucky me. I mean that. The Mobcom has all the armor. The suit isn't designed to do much without it. The difference between a blow that would break the Mobcom open and one that would break it open and turn me into paste is only a hair's breadth. Did you pull your punch? What? He shakes his helmeted head. Oh, no, I wish I... He pauses. Listen. There's something you need to see. We got a broadcast an hour ago. Video flashes into my vision. I recognize the jagged lines of the Minoan Ark from a hundred propaganda videos, the sinister face of the enemy as seen from an escorting cruiser. Then a tiny spark of light blossoms in the center of the screen, rapidly expanding into a roaring ball of energy that must be hundreds of kilometers across. The huge, ancient ship scatters into a thousand spinning pieces, fragments blasted free just ahead of the all-consuming sphere of light. I blink, trying to understand what I'm looking at. The Minoan Ark, the last bastion of their civilization, where they keep their factories, their food supplies, their command, their children, and their crest schools. The end of the war. I... Tears are welling up in my eyes, wicked away by my faithful suit. I don't... That's not all, Gar says. Here. Another video. This time, it's home. The smooth curves of the Circean arc, as friendly and familiar as the inside of my mobcom. The tiny world on which I was raised, with my crush brothers and sisters where I hoped to go walk in the gardens if I could ever get enough leave. The same tiny spark of light, the same expanding sphere. I close my eyes before I can see the end. They were developing a new weapon, I say, dully. Something complicated. A wormhole tachyon something something, Annie said. Apparently, the comm station here in the General Randolph painted a target on the Ark, Gar said. A few minutes later, that thing went off. As best as we can tell, the same effect happened on your side at the same time. They lost control. I want to cry, laugh, and curl into a tiny ball of guilt all at once. Those stupid, stupid bastards. They built a new toy and they let it get out of control. That's what my side thinks, anyway. He shakes his head again. Either way, it hardly matters what happened now. Nothing matters now. The war is over. No one left to fight. There's a long interval of silence. I can hear Gar's ragged breathing over the open channel. I wonder if he's been crying. What happened to Jemmy? I say at last. She pulled out after the explosion. I don't blame her. You ought to have been dead. When these images came through, I sent her a message telling her I'd picked you up. Last I saw, she turned her torch around and headed back this way. Why? What are we going to do now? 
What was there to do, except ghost ourselves and be done with it? My suit could still manage that much. Vivian is off building our anti-ship weaponry. We've got plenty of energy here. He sounds almost shy. When we're ready, I'm going to broadcast an invitation to both sides. Everyone who's left. That might amount to a few dozen mobcoms, a few cruisers, and some corvettes. To do what? To build a new ark. Here? Both sides? He nods. Do you think they'll listen? The operators will, Kar said. You told me the secret. It's just a job for us. And now the job is over. Time to move on. The officers on the cruisers might object. Have you ever thought about what a mobcom could do to a cruiser if you decided to take it apart? I'd never even considered it, but the answer was obvious. Cruisers were fat, fragile wet ships, and their tiny crews would be no match for a gang of mobs. You really think it will work? I say. It might. We'll have the mobcom's fusion bottles, all the resources of the General Randolph. We can take the cruises apart if necessary, go and fetch more wrecks, figure something out. I can tell somehow that he's smiling. It beats the alternative. Yeah, I say after a minute. I suppose it does. Another silence. I saw what you did, Gar says, with the diamonds. I wanted to say thank you for not taking the kill shot. I thought about it, I say, but, and I really am sorry for taking mine. Don't worry, I shake my head. I won't take it personally. It's only a job. There you go. Don't forget, copyright, as always, is Django's. Django's, like say, a big thank you for kind of letting me have that story. Marvellous. Thank you so much. And Mark, big bear hug, sir. What a, what a voice. What a star. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. And a big thank you to Jeremy there, kind of pulling this all together. Just sit down like, like a true professional I am. You know what I mean? Sit down. It's all there. Thanks to Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy's just going through... <laughs> he's got about two or three weeks left now, I think, maybe four, something like that with his kind of university, and it's just head down, just you know, so, so much work he's got in front of him, just kind of squash in, so good luck there, lad. Don't forget, just keep, don't, don't, don't ignore your studies. <laughs> so, until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story of Silver. A 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.